we spend between 40 and 60 hours a week working, unless you're in med school or something, working. We spend another 40 to 60 hours a week sleeping, unless you're in med school or something. We spend another 40 to 60 hours doing other stuff, for me, a seeming endless list of chores or binge-watching Netflix. What is it all for? Over the last years, and even this last week, I've had the opportunity to clean out a bunch of stuff, my dad's and grandfather's stuff, my mom's stuff. Um, so what I was doing, like I said, and we're, we're putting out, what are we going to donate? What are we going to keep? What are we going to throw away as she's downsized to independent living? And doing this stuff makes you wonder, what is it all for? What do I want my life to be about, and why? And I'm not sure this isn't the musings of a 46-year-old man somewhere near a midlife crisis, maybe ready to get an IROC Z, maybe lighten the tips of my hair or something like that, I don't know. Amanda, there was a big no from Amanda in the first service. Um, I'm not sure it's that, but I know that it is the question that I was pondering all week as a pastor trying to enter into this amazing little psalm to try to learn the, the music and the lyric of this tune. And what I found is it helps me with my capacity to sing the notes and the lyrics of something more eternal. The psalm return, retunes my heart uh, toward a more beautiful end against the folly of my short-sighted hopes and goals and toward the glory of the God who gives meaning to all 168 hours in your week even the ones you sleep. So let's just dive in. What's it all worth? What, what's it all for? It actually starts kind of with, a, with a, a pretty radical statement. To be blessed. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, which in translation is guitar solo. No, no one knows what it means, but it, uh, it probably means some type of break in the music, something like that. So guitar solo seems appropriate for me. Do you know we have a, a young girl in our church named Selah, right? Or Selah. Do you know what her middle name is? Halen. Do you know why her name is Halen? Because her dad's a huge Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen fan. <laughs> so clearly it works. Anyway, that's not any besides, I just found that out last service. Um. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I hope you hear this clearly. One of the great purposes in life is to receive and revel in God's blessing. This thought makes its debut pretty early on in Scripture, frankly, uh, at the story of God's creation where God blesses Adam and Eve, so really early on. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It also makes its way into the very first promises of the covenant. And I will make you a great nation, he says to Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great. I don't really want to belabor that point, but I need you to hear just how amazing that that is, that the God of the universe created you and me, it created humanity to bless us. 
This is where that language of graciousness comes in. Maybe, maybe be gracious to us and bless us. May his face shine upon us. It's Aaron's blessing in, in number six, and it's modified so that the, the whole community of the church can sing it together and receive it together. And the word gracious here is a mix of kindness and mercy. It's a touch of belonging and acceptance. It is assuming a dynamic and, and true and beautiful relationship with God. And has such a, a very slight hint of, of, of kind of forgiveness in, which we need so greatly. And as this graciousness and blessings comes forth, and as, it, as its story unfolds in the scriptures, I need you to hear me for a, for, for a bit. The, the, the end of Psalm 67 isn't with just Israel would sing of its special place before God as a nation among nations. That is not the end of 67. But the end is actually through and in the Christ, Jesus. The second Adam, the prophet who is greater than Moses. The one who before Abraham was, he was, or I am. The son, the second person of the Trinity, that took place of God's nation state as it expanded and renewed and reordered from a nation into a new people, a new humanity, under his grace, under his blessing. And this is called the church. The covenant people are no longer a nation state, but a transnational people. And this totally freaked out the early church. The Jews thought, well, for sure that, that this covenant is going to include things like circumcision and kosher eating and all the traditions of the nation of Israel. But in Christ, there was this new transnational identity, not marked by those things, but marked by the shed blood of Jesus and the, Jesus and the covenant made there, marked by forgiveness and a recreation of a new people and recreation of our lives and marked by belonging and being blessed. Or, to put it another way, is marked by his grace. To have his face shine upon us. I don't know, really, I can't think of much better metaphor of blessing and grace and kindness and belonging to have his face shine upon us. I remember being on a sports field where, well, my dad didn't really know much about soccer when I was five. I didn't know much about soccer either. But I remember looking over the sideline and seeing my dad watching me with his face lit up as the ball went right by me. I remember my mom listening to me sing early on in life with a silly smile on her face, and I wasn't very good, and you know now, I'm still not. But her face was beaming. I remember both Springer and Carver used to get annoyed a little bit when we were holding them like this and our faces turned elsewhere and they'd grab our cheeks and move our faces right directly towards them. She wanted us to have her, our faces shine upon her. Here's the reality of those who are called, who have called upon the name of Christ, who are united to him. His face shines upon you. He's gracious to you. And he has blessed you. You don't have to move his cheeks. Your calling and your reality in life is to be blessed by him. Now, now this really starts to give meaning to the 168 hours a week that we live. From our studies to our goals. And there's, this means it's okay to be a little, have a little ambition, a little oomph. It's okay to want to be successful in, in the right sense of that word. It's okay to want to work hard and play hard and rest hard too. It really is. 
And that can be done in a thousand, bazillion different vocational and, and, uh, and ministry and, um, and volunteership uh, interests and opportunities. And it also means that none of those things of our 168 hours, none of those vocational acts, those sense of callings, is necessary for your happiness or your blessedness or your fulfillment. Because God's face shines upon us when we don't get the job. God's face shines upon us when we don't get the house or the career or the family or the life goals that we all hope for. His face still beams toward you. And guess what? Our God, in particular, knows how to do wonders with people who need second chances. And third, he knows how to do wonders with people who've missed their dreams, who've had mediocre performances, who've wasted opportunities, and have been outright, at times, failed or failures. He actually specializes in this kind of, of, of shining his face on people like that. Which is why it's so important and to make essential that, the, that being blessed does not stand on its own. God delights in blessing his people so that they might be a blessing to others. To be blessed, blessers, is what it's all for. Look how he continues after verse 1 into verse 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, guitar solo, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. We have God's face shining on us that his saving power would be heralded, be good news, be gospeled among the nations. And saving power here is the whole kit and caboodle of physical and spiritual and emotional and communal and intellectual salvation. We are blessed to be a blessing and to manifest the kindness and the saving power of God. You, may, you might say that God is gracious to us and blesses us and makes his face shine upon us, that he might be gracious to others, bless others, and make his face shine upon others. That's what the rest of the promises and the Abrahamic covenant that I started with, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Y'all, this is why I love our history and, 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 and why I love being creative about how we bless people in our community. So we can demonstrate the ways that we have been blessed. Y'all, when I talk about learning to navigate difference among us, I, you know, I hope that we all get along. I think that's really great. But what I'm really after is the demonstrating of the reconciling power of the gospel that, that, that God's ways might be known among the nations. That, that we would bless others with the ability to talk to one another in a day and age where it doesn't seem like anybody can talk to one another. That's a blessing to the nations. And that leads to the course, the transnational, multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomically different reality of the course. Let the peoples praise you. Oh God, let all the peoples praise you. The course of this psalm. Y'all, I love it when we do something to be a blessing to our community, like the RAW or hosting ESL classes or VBS or anything like that. It's what we're made to do. It's why I love our history of cross-cultural work. 
I know lots of churches, and there are very few churches that have, have the experience that we do in cross-cultural work. It is an amazing testimony to God's love. I love it about us. We've been blessed and long to take that blessing across the street and across the nations. Let's keep up that tradition of cross-cultural service. I don't know if you know about this, but we do this tri-annual service to uh, uh, missions agencies called Surge that we've been doing for years and years. And they have a, again, every third year they have this gathering, a community gathering, a, a, a company gathering, and, and all of their cross-cultural workers come together. And we go and have gone for years now to take care of their kids while they do that so they can be refueled and re-enter into bringing the people's, let the people's praise you, oh God, let all the people's praise you. We give them energy for that. If you don't know about that, ask around. Somebody around within, uh, you know, spitting distance will know something about it or find out where Debbie Harrell's information is and she can tell you. But let's get creative in our public witness and continue to do it. I said, next time there's a protest, what I want is, is, is it, or a protest and counter-protest, I want to do is I want to create a, a conversation tent that has ground rules and, and maybe a police presence, but uh, ask people to stay curious and humble with their fellow image bearers as they try to work through things together, as they discuss, what, discuss whatever is being protest. Yo, I don't want to navigate difference just among ourselves. I want to bless Winston-Salem with the blessing of speech tempered with the knowledge of God and the love of neighbor that comes through our life in Christ. I want his ways to be known among the nations. It's always evangelism for me. Shh, don't tell anybody. So we need to come up with hundreds and more ideas. And I think we should. We need to be encouraged in our long history of blessing. But keep remembering how much we can become a blessing, how much we've been blessed so that we can become a blessing. To imagine how to be a blessing to our neighbors, near and far. I kind of threw it out. and I said, anybody want to go to, to the border and bless the nations there? I'm serious. I got a bunch of texts mid-sermon. So I will to be continued. So here's the why of it all, though. We are blessed to be blessers, but why? It's not that we're to be do-gooders alone. Though, please don't let anybody tell you that a Christian isn't supposed to be a do-gooder. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we are do-gooders. But why? Or how does it happen when we get in the ruts of our lives? How will it work out? I think there are two things that are embedded in this psalm that will be incredible for us to help lift our heads and move uh, towards a more, um, uh, a, a more thorough experience of this sense of calling to be blessed and blessers. And I think, I think it's tied to this language of the global identity and global mission of God here. I hope that we were able to see it between the Selahs, right? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, Selah. See, I think sometimes what creates the ruts and those difficulties of knowing it's all worth it, of wondering why it's all for, is the excitement and breadth of the mission of God please don't make any mistake that our identity and this mission is transnational and very public. The, the peoples is a statement about the nations 
a statement about ethnos, if it was in the Greek, at the goyim, if it was in the Hebrew. God's intent from the beginning is that his honor, his character, and his blessings would fill every square inch of the cosmos as far as the curse is found. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. I think it's Piper. Yeah, it's Piper. He says, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every t- tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's Stott who says, we must be a global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. One of the things I love about prayers uh, at 1130 is that I get to hang out with Tim and Barbara Wagner who know everything about what's going on in the world. And they, like, that may be a slight exaggeration, but pretty close. And they pray accordingly as if God was, like, going to manifest in the world. Because, guess what? God's going to manifest and does manifest in the world. We need to, like, go help them and double our global engagement team. So not just to send us out on mission, which is great, but to teach us how to, how to experience and learn uh, of our identity as global Christians, this transnational people that we are. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his, Piper says. For the sake of his name, let us renounce the quests of worldly comfort and join his global purpose. Y'all, I think we have an identity problem in the American church. And I'm not sure why completely. It probably has to do with the powerful myth of Christian American exceptionalism and a confusion with the kingdom of God and the creation of the state, but I, I don't really care how we got it. We have to decouple American and Christian identity or some social or partisan or subnational identity. Our brothers and sisters are transnational with us. It doesn't matter how we got it, but we must think of ourselves as the church to include our brothers on the other side of the world, the other side of town, everywhere. This identifying with global Christianity changes our horizons and enlarges our visions about who we are and what we're to be. And ultimately, our acknowledgement and participation with an experience of being this global phenomenon is this incredible experience that brings energy and hope to our mission day in and day out. There's something wonderfully countercultural about, you know, not having your identity tied up in anything other than the church, than being his people. It just does something. It unites us more beautifully because we're united in Christ and that connects us more deeply than any border or flag can unite. Look, I'm wearing red, white, and blue because I want America to destroy the Netherlands in soccer today. But that's a secondary identity. Our brothers, our true brothers, are in Egypt and Iceland and Netherlands and Perth and Padua. Our sisters are in Budnabugio and Belgium and Manila and Mumbai. That we have covenant children in the Sudan in tents or in the border in cages or in danger in utero that are connected to us by something so much more powerful than a nation state, a passport or a common language. And for, in fact, we are blood brothers and sisters, literally the blood of the one who loves us and the one whose glory is our end. And so we can be encouraged. The God of the cosmos, the global God, will retune our identity in singing this psalm because 
<laughs> because we're actually the end of this. How many of you, be honest with me, how many of you read this and were thinking about the ends of the earth and the other nations and you thought about America being the center? Be honest. That's not the case. America wasn't even thought up yet. Israel would have been the center. There have been like multiple nations that existed on this piece of land between when this was written and it's the, the, and, and the end that we're in right now. It's amazing. We are proof that it has gone to the nations. We are the ethnos, the goanim. We are the recipients of this blessing, the gospel. We are the ends of the earth. But there's one last thing, not just our identity as a global Christianity, but most importantly, what's throughout this passage is the glory of God. And that also pulls us out of the rut of things. A quick history lesson. About 500 years ago, another nation state, England, was in a civil war, a turmoil. And uh, these revolutionaries said, hey, pastors, I want all you pastors to get together and write a concise theological statement. They didn't do so well in the concise, but they wrote a theological statement. It was in the 1600s, and they were fighting for good things like liberty and freedom and unity, and fighting for things like who's going to control the empire. Not such good things. But they did do this amazing thing by creating an assembly of diverse denominational leaders across the Protestant land, and they called it the assembly at Westminster, at Westminster Abbey. They created a confession of faith, a larger catechism, and a shorter catechism. Their work is actually a work that we subscribe to in our own denomination. The larger catechism was for the adults. The shorter catechism was for the children. Nowadays, what's required of a pastor in our denomination is the memorization of a shorter catechism, which means that we are about as prepared, as trained as elementary school students. Um, but as they were thinking about all of this, they had to come up with a starting point in the catechism for the kids. And all you, you're itching, you've, you, you uh, Westminsterian Presbyterians are itching for this. The question was, what is the chief end of man? Or what is the end game? What's the purpose? What, what's it all about? What are, what are you doing? What is the chief end of man? A little better. What is the chief end of man? To That's such good Presbyterian love right there. I love it. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glory is a word that means both weight and light, heft and illumination of the character and the reign of God. It's giving worth and weight and illumination to the character and power of God, that the God of the world would be known and united and delighted in. The people would see his power and his good judgments, his guidance and his equity. And so our being blessed and being blessings become to the witness to the glory, the renown, and the honor of God. I think one of the reasons why I get in ruts and why we get in ruts about what our life is about, what's it all for, is because we're working for the glory of the wrong thing. Y'all, the glory of our comfort or pleasure can't hack what it means to be a human. I know I've, I've given it a good go. 
it won't hold that weight. The glory of your company or uh, is not large enough goal for you to flourish in. The glory of your name or your bank account is not fulfilling enough to deal with who you are as a bearer of the image of God. The glory of your body looking right or your kids growing upright is just not strong enough to shoulder your calling and purpose to bring glory to God. It can't handle it. I'm 46 years old, and you might say that I've given my life to the cause of Christ and the glory of God, at least since I converted at 16. I'm a pastor, for goodness sake. I'm a professional Christian. But I want you to know that many days, I see my own affections desperately out of whack for the pursuit of his glory. I see my own life desperately in need of a reminder of his true and deepest blessings to me and my calling to be a blesser in the world. And it's actually the only way to really enjoy God. The realization that Jesus has been this kind to us because in Jesus, God's fa- the Father's faith shines upon us. He can retune and reorient our affections and hopes. In fact, I want to say that when, I'm, when I come to the places of sanity, there's something really beautiful about not pursuing your own glory. There's something really wonderful and liberating about not having my own or do, working for my own power or prestige and pleasure. There's something so much better about me not being the center of it all. And there's something adventurous and riveting about not living by the rat race of certain successes, but just trying to discern the face that delights in you, the purposes he has for you, for his glory. It's just really nice for it not to be about you, but to be about the one who it should all be about. That is a well-ordered life. But I want to take the pressure off a little bit more because, well, there's this great missiologist. His name is Leslie Newbegin. He was a pastor who served, and in his service um, in, in India and Pakistan, he actually brought the Church of India and the Church of Pakistan together. Let me just tell you, that ain't easy work. That was a lifelong endeavor for him. He's also written all about missions, and he predicted all the chaos of secularism in the world. He's amazing. But he says this, and this is to put the pressure off you, so that it can be on the glory of God. What's it all for? You may think you have to go do something incredibly heroic. He says this, the history of missions can largely be written without missionaries being named. The kingdom of God has primarily expanded through ordinary folks, people who have whispered the gossip of the gospel of Jesus' love to their neighbors people who have given their lives to the one who has been gracious to them by being gracious to their neighbors. And I would add, people who have not oriented their lives to their own glory, the glory of the nation, or whatever sub-nation or whatever it is, but have oriented toward the glory of God, that his name might be manifest, that his worship might be throughout the earth. That we do 168 hours a week.